Hello and welcome to Bright Wings, children's books to make the heart soar. I am your host, Charity Hill. The purpose of this conversation is to help mothers and fathers identify books that will liberate their children to embrace truth, goodness, and beauty. Have you ever wondered, what does a speech-language pathologist do? Is there any connection between speech-language pathology and poetry? What does reading ability have to do with self-regulation? Have you ever considered that education is about formation rather than simply information? Guess which activity at school involves both executive functioning and virtue growth? I'll give you a hint. It's in the language arts category. Joining me to ponder these questions is my fellow logophile, Jenny Richardson. Jenny Richardson joins me to talk about her love for language and words, both their mechanics and their beauty. She is a speech language pathologist who provides interventions from a holistic cognitive approach. She also loves literature and writes poetry. For this remarkable pairing, she calls herself the speech poet. Jenny now works in private practice in Kentucky after years in low-income public schools. I want to welcome you, Jenny Richardson, the speech poet to Brightwing's Children's Books. Thanks for being here and having this conversation. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good to be with you. We've both discovered that we have this mutual love for literature and for words, and yours has taken shape differently than mine. But um, I I find that what you're doing is so interesting as a speech language pathologist and a cognitive interventionist, Mm -hmm. the way that you want to uh, engage children at a practical level in a way that allows them to live more deeply and more richly. Yes. Is that a a true understanding? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Tell me about this combination of interests, speech pathology and poetry. You call yourself the speech poet. How did that happen? During the pandemic, you know how um, I just got creative with like ways I wanted to grow um, because I was at home and doing therapy from home and online. And and so um, I um, got a little bit of coaching from someone who knew what they were doing and decided to put it out there a little bit like this is what. I'm going to, this is what I'm doing now in private practice. And, um, you know, and then you've got to get a little bit creative. So I didn't exactly know what to call myself, but I just thought, well, what is it that I do? Or what is it that I've studied? And so it was the speech pathology piece and how I've kind of grown um, in that field, grown in getting more education in the poetry literature piece. So that's where the, the speech poet um, came from. It's, you know, it was unique. There's, I follow a lot of speech pathologists on Instagram. And so it was kind of unique what I was doing. So I thought I'm just, that's who I am. And then I, I guess I saw, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I saw what you were doing. I saw, um, your love for literature and books and trying to get kids and families to read and reading is, is just a big passion of mine because, so many kids I've encountered over the years don't read well. So many kids in our public schools are not reading on grade level for a lot of reasons. So yeah, we kind of connected and I felt like from the beginning there was a kindred spirit. And so now yeah. here we are talking. So Jenny, just, just to spell it out for us, what are you, what is a speech language pathologist? What's a cognitive interventionist? So what is 
What do I do? What is the, like, like what, is it? what are the practical things of your right. job? And then okay. talk about the things that you love. Okay. Right? So speak, speech pathology, it is a field where I'm trying to provide communication, intervention, and therapy. For me, it's pediatrics children with a range of communication challenges that look like learning challenges a lot of the time. So it could be in their language, receptive, expressive language, receptive being what they know and expressive being how well they can express and communicate. Speech, how they talk, how they learn to talk. Talking is typically inherently just learned by hearing, but language is different, right? You can know how to talk but not know how to spell or write out the language that you're talking. Mm, mm. So, and then there's the whole phonological development that comes with language. Once you've, you're at an age as a child and you, you're, let's say you can communicate pretty well, but then you have to learn the mechanics of this letter makes this sound and you have to know, understand syllables and units of sound and, uh, multi-syllable words. There are th- many things that can happen that can impair that development. There's a range of disabilities, communication related. There's like apraxia of speech, which is a motor speech disorder. And there are certain speech impairments. So would, a, would a motor speech <clears throat> disorder be, for example, the inability to form the S or the SH or the R sound? So apraxia, yes. Or more severe in that it might look like a three-syllable word being only able to be produced as a consonant-vowel combination, where a child consistently has patterns. Let's say they are always leaving off the last sound, or they're always leaving off syllables. And so their speech can sound, in more severe cases, mm-hmm. where they're really unintelligible, it can sound kind of like telegraphic, and they might have the intonation down. So you can hear the rise and fall of the intonation a lot of times and they know what they're trying to say, but you, you don't know what it is. It's just very unintelligible. So that's the speech pathology piece uh, as far as language, speech, talking in the phonological sound system. And then in the last 10 years, I just kind of found my way into the cognition piece. So it's really all connected. It's more of a holistic approach. It's kind of been tricky to figure out how to say what it is I do because I, I want to say cognitive intervention, but I'm a speech pathologist more from a operating or practicing from that holistic cognitive approach in that all learning is connected. I mean, the brain is connected, right? So you've got your the the uh, visual word form area of your brain. You've got the Broca's area, Wernicke's area. You've got these areas of the brain that are, are um, responsible for language, communication, speech. Um, learning to understand the printed word language as it's written, orthography. Um, And so I got frustrated. I guess it was both kind of a serendipitous frustration and curiosity because I I just would run into so many kids who weren't learning. And I just wasn't okay with it. I was like, I just feel like there's something we can do. Most kids, I mean, I've never met a child who couldn't learn. It may have been harder for them to learn, but why was this information not going in? What's going on here? I have nieces and nephews in my family, and I've had some of the some of the kids in my family, a couple of them have had some of their own challenges with with development when they're younger years. They were uh, two of them were adopted 
from overseas. And so they were lacking in some of the early parental support that they needed because they lived the first couple of years of their life in an orphanage. So it was a combination of just kind of seeing what they needed, how that was pursued. And then the cognition piece really looks at, you know, like visual discrimination, visual processing. It's taking into account everything like auditory processing, which also kind of falls under a speech and language problem. You know, kids with auditory processing disorders will come to see me. And then there's the executive functioning piece. So that's all the kind of frontal lobe stuff like um, self-awareness, self-regulation, being able to have self-control, being able to have some sense of time. Like if you've ever seen a child who had no sense of time at all, they can't get their work done. There's usually an executive functioning piece there. Where somebody on the outside has to always be their frontal lobe for them. You know, you, you know what I mean? It's like, you've got a problem on your hands and you need to help that child. So that really kind of explains the cognition piece. Okay. But it's really just looking at the child holistically. That's what it is. It's this is a holistic child. They cannot be broken down into parts. The way they think and the way they receive information is going to be how they're going to is reflective of how they're going to learn the subjects they need to learn. So what's going on with the child? And it just takes constant. I mean, I'm curious by nature. So sometimes I'll run into a situation with a child and I'm like, I don't know, but I'm going to find out or I'll read about it or I'll figure out what, what can I do to get to the bottom of that and help Mm -hmm. that child a little bit more. So does that make sense? Does it answer your question? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, Jenny, there's this other aspect of your personality and your interests for which you call yourself the speech poet. You love language and words and you write poetry. Can you tell us about this? So I I really just love language. I love um, reading. I love writing. I love communication. I love the whole art of language. And to me, it's more of an art. And I did not realize that about myself in my early years. In, in speech pathology in the field. But I also knew that this there's a technical clinical side that I can't just live in that place. It's just not rich enough for me. Yeah. Um, and so um, I sort of fell into, I've always loved reading too. I've always loved books, but I didn't know into adulthood that I liked poetry and even had a knack for it. I think the thing that drives me is I see kids that struggle so much to communicate and I know how gorgeous language can be. And I know it's such a powerful tool that I really want to get them there. And I, it is functional. I'm trying to give them functional communication and help form who they are. But at the same time, I want them to taste a little bit of what they could do if they can really grab hold of communicating well mastering language well and being able to read and write well. That is kind of where my heart is in terms of what drives me and why I just love language so much. Would you say that you love sort of these deeper, more meaningful aspects of language and words in your, in, in your quote unquote, in your kids? And that's what kind of gives you the motivation to help them with mechanical practical aspects of their therapies? Yes, absolutely. And just realizing like a genuine, I genuinely just love children too. I mean, I don't think you could do this because it's, it's, it's a funny comedy of error. Sometimes the things that happen in the therapy room, the things they say or do, 
especially if there's an executive function piece, if there's a severe ADHD and kids are blurting out ridiculous things. <laughs> you have to you have to sort of shape that, right? So, and also when I'm able to kind of tell them, listen, I can give you a little bit of power over this awkward social situation you keep finding yourself in and at school. Let me tell you what you should say and you should not say if you want to have some friends. And we have those kind of conversations, um, not all the time, but typically with my middle school kids, you would think some of this is obvious, but it's not obvious for them, especially, you know, I will see kids come into my therapy room and they are high functioning autistic. And to the outside world, people don't see or know that there's autism there. That's where I can really help them. So, yeah, that's that love of language and the love of of kids is really what drives me. I really feel like you are a kindred spirit to me with your love for words and language and all the gear, tackle and trim that goes along with it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think one of our shared assumptions you and me, it seems to be that we think the best education is one that acknowledges that the child has a mysterious depth and a profound trajectory from their beginning to their end. And, mm-hmm. and the more we're able to integrate our children, the better. The more we're able to capacitate our children to be well-ordered, the better. The more we're able to provide scaffolding, you know, the scaffolding that mm-hmm. our child needs for growth in virtue, the better. Um, And the deeper our children engage with meaning, with the great themes of existence, the better. But I also think that we kind of, Jenny, that we share an assumption that it's possible to ask, sometimes gently and sometimes very assertively, ask more from our children. Mm -hmm. How accurate do you think these assumptions are? Yeah, very accurate. I think very well said. Um, And integration is definitely the key word for me. And in the last, like I said, 10 years that I've been, I've studied poetry, studied literature, I've studied classical education. Um, It's it's given me some of the language to describe what I've seen, maybe sometimes what I've seen lacking in public schools, public education at times, not necessarily in the people and the teachers, because I think teachers are real salt of the earth people, but maybe in the approach to education. I'm just going for integration. And I see a lot of kids who are very disintegrated. And yeah, can you yes. show tell me about an example? Yes. What does a child so, with a disintegrated functioning mm-hmm. look like? So in the therapy world, disintegration is a common word in the therapy world. But I guess once you when you talk to a lot of therapists, even like occupational therapists, physical therapists, speech and language therapists you realize like people outside of our field don't necessarily know what, what are you talking about? So, so when I've worked with kids who I would say are disintegrated, it can look like a lot of different things. It could look like severe ADHD in a classroom. It could look like a child who see things that you might describe as it goes in one ear and out the other. They, they can't process what you said. They can't sit still. They blurt out. They don't have any inhibition, no self-control. They're always hitting or pushing another child in line. Disintegration can look like kids being very sensitive, their sensory systems being very sensitive to say really loud noises or certain food textures so that reportedly you'll hear parents say they will only eat one, two or three things. Mm. Um, there, You have to understand what's going on there. And then 
your goal again is integrating more holistic living, really. You know, I've had uh, children before who've had to go to feeding therapy Mm. because they weren't eating enough to get nourished. And feeding therapy falls under speech pathology sometimes, and sometimes it's under occupational therapy. It kind of depends. But I'm not a specialist in the feeding piece. I know a little bit about it. So if I see that as a really big problem, then I'm going to refer out for that. But let's say go back to the ADHD example. So in a classroom, in the teachers that I've worked with over the years are really great teachers. Um, I don't think you could be at a, a hard school, like say a lower socioeconomic, where you, you see a lot of the impact of poverty. I don't think you could stay in a school like that unless you really loved kids. So I've really been around great teachers. But at the same time, a kid like that can drive a teacher crazy, right? And sometimes you just, you want a quick fix. You want them to be put on medicine to control it. And that may be part of the treatment plan, but it's only part of it. There's this whole teaching piece that becomes important with the executive functioning and the self-control. And so you do see a dis, you see that disintegration where, okay, yes, the end goal is learning, but if they can't sit still long enough and control their body long enough to learn, then we're disintegrated there. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. need to Have look for you home. had teachers not understand what you're doing with a student in therapy? Yes, I would say that in a school system, in my experience, they often don't understand the scope of what a speech pathologist can do perhaps even just a special educator can do. Um, I think a lot of times in my case, they'll think, can you work on their S or their L or, you know, they don't, they don't have a lot of vocabulary or something like that. You have to constantly educate your teachers and, and just your, your clients, your stakeholders, your parents on what you're doing and continue to educate yourself on how to really be able to help this child and the family. So yes, I have found found that sometimes there is a lack of understanding. But at the same time, you know, I felt a pressure probably I put on myself that in a given situation, it's in a if I'm on a team and a child, like say they can't read or they can't communicate well, I mean, I'm the specialist. I'm not the regular classroom teacher. So I just didn't like not really being able to help or not knowing, you know, um, thought, well, that's what my, my job is. Um, but it's not always an easy thing to figure out in terms of what's going on with the child. So you really have to have holistic assessments as well as holistic therapy. Jenny, I think, you know, I think we both agree that high grades and test scores are pretty exciting, Uh, Mm -hmm. but these are not the things we're striving for when I push, when I quote unquote push high level reading and when you treat dyslexia and executive functioning needs. Funnily enough, I think we both want the same thing for kids that we want formation for them. We want the deepest things for them. We want to capacitate them to put out into the deep. Can you comment on this? Can you comment about um, formation? Just a second ago, we were talking about how schools can hardly survive Mm -hmm. in a certain sense, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Am I crazy that I want more for my children? Am I crazy that I want them to have formation and not just information? And frankly, not just my kids, everyone's. So, yeah, I think formation is is key. And I think that it's um, I've seen it attempted 
you know, really, really good efforts in, in public education settings. Uh, maybe with a different lang- different language, it might be more of like a guidance counselor curriculum that, that will focus on topics of bullying or grit or perseverance. And those are good things. But uh, also, you know, like, for instance, at the high school level, you know, I don't really like the phrase college and career ready. And it's not that I am opposed to being ready for your college or career experience. In fact, I think you should be. But I just think it's limiting. I think it's too simplistic. And as I, you and I kind of discussed. Too functional. Yeah. So it's not, it's almost like devaluing who the child really is because there's actually more to their life than a college and a career. There's virtue. There's being a good human being. There's how you treat other people, how you look at challenges, how you live out what justice is to you. What does justice look like? in the way you live it out in your relationships and how you treat people. And mm. so virtue is super important. So if you have good grades, but you're a jerk or you're addicted addicted to video games. And I mean, I don't really like it when kids don't know how to be bored. I just, I'm like, you need to learn how to be bored. You need to find and cultivate your imagination. And that so ties into the cognitive piece because visualization is huge in cognition and you have to be able to visualize we think in pictures we do not really think in words the brain has to be able to visualize i'm a big fan of sanctified imagination imagination i mean really pushing imagination and creativity but technology sort of stunts the brain and doesn't force it to have to visualize because there's always a screen in front of Doing a developing it brain. Yeah. Or so the imagination. Yeah. Right, right. And I've thought a lot about this. Some years ago, um, there's some some stuff that C.S. Lewis I think has talked about on the imagine on imagination and cultivating imagination. I think back to myself when I learned how to read and when I started this journey, really understanding the cognition piece of learning in the last 10 years, I started to remember when I learned how to read, I loved reading and I could picture, and I can to this day remember picturing in my mind what this character would look like in my mind. I was generating an image without knowing I was doing it, right? Because I was giving myself over to the book, to the story, to the text, and allowing myself to be lost in it. I mean, I've seen so many children young children literally addicted to a screen that they just had a fit when you took it away from them. They couldn't do any learning except for on a computer. Yikes, right? Virtues and vices are, you know, characterized by being stable habits and they and they habituate us, right? That's why the concern of education being about formation rather than information is so important. That child has been habituated to a technological way of being rather than a, a human way of being. There's a problem there. You know, they're really um, undercutting what they what they are they could do with their mind. But they have to be taught well. They have to be coached appropriately. They don't know how much time they need to be on technology. The the grownups in their lives know need to monitor that. Yeah, that whole college and career ready. It's just not. I just think the whole phrase should be leveled up a little bit. College career and virtue ready. You know what I mean? Or like. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a good phrase, right? Substitute phrase for college and career ready, like college career and good guy ready, like humanity formed. (laughs) Yes, right. Yes, 
affirming humanities. Exactly. So if I could add to that a little bit, Charity, I'll say, so in my um, private practice, I have really had to do a little bit more personal formation at times in therapy. And and I'll talk to the parents about it. I'm always very open with parents about kind of what I see and what I want to work on, you know, in order to eliminate some behaviors that I'm that are not desirable, like a child who maybe going to hide and duck under a table or a chair and just, uh, no, I don't want to do this with you right now or whatever. I will sit down with them. We just kind of back up to the beginning of let's just get the rules of engagement set. Sometimes we do I am statements like I am respectful. I am confident. I am okay with with not knowing something. I see a lot of kids that can't handle getting things wrong. Uh, Even though they have lots of learning challenges, they really can't handle sometimes when they're wrong. There's a lot of formation that comes with what does it look like when you fail at a task and how that's not being a failure. And there's a difference. There's a real difference in how you view yourself. Sometimes kids come in with a lot of shame and rejection because they maybe have been teased by something or they know that they don't quite measure up in an academic way or a social skills kind of way or they don't have as many friends as they want. And so formation sort of looks like affirming who they are, but also having high expectations for how they're going to treat me. We're not going to duck under tables anymore. We're not going to do that. Okay. You sit down. (laughs) Stuff like that. You must have, oh my gosh, I'm just so glad there are people like you in the world because I'm just confronted with my own limitations and I like just keeping keeping your calm through all of that, um, having such a grip on the good too, Jenny. I don't know how, I mean, you must have just such a firm grasp of the good and so much hope for these kids that they can grow, that they can sit in the chair instead of hide under the chair. (laughs) Because otherwise, how would you engage in therapy if you didn't have this grip on the good and this firm hope for these kids? You know, in I my think the first, if a kid did that to me, I'd be like, okay, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> it's over. I can't handle it. Right. You know, in I I know I've got to give credit here where credit's due. I have worked with so many good people in the public school arena that were so good at handling really difficult behaviors. I have seen such extreme behaviors. Okay. I have had I have been smacked by kids. I've had my glasses ripped off my face, thrown in the in the garbage can. I've been kicked in the stomach. I've had jewelry pulled off my neck. I mean, <laughs> and this is over the course of a lot of years. You know, it's not fun and you definitely um, need to get away quick. Like don't get yourself in a position where you can get kicked in the stomach. But if you're talking about kids with not only, some of these kids have learning challenges, right? They don't necessarily have an, I mean, if I worked with you in the public schools, you had an IP, but the ones I see privately, they don't all have an IP, but some of these kids have more severe disabilities, right? And sometimes those kind of behaviors come with that. But if you're with a good team of people who are really good with those kinds of things, you just learn a lot and you just learn to love them but you have high expectations. And that means pretty clearly saying what, what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. And my husband is really great at this. If I have a challenge sometimes in the therapy room and I'll come home and talk to him and say, cause he deals with discipline. Um, so he, he deals with a lot of this, one of his things that he does in his role. 
he's not necessarily like the top instructional guy. He's he does a lot of things, but he's really good with discipline. Hmm. He's, he's he's got a reputation of being firm but fair, firm but fair. And he has kids in his office that cry a lot. I mean, that's just education for you. If you're going to get in trouble and you're in the principal's office, you're probably going to end up crying at some point. You know, Cry, crying is 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 actually good. Like crying, yeah, crying good. Side. good. Like crying's, crying's right. good. You don't want to fight. Yes. You don't want people right. lying. Like no, right. no, I didn't do it. There were five witnesses, but definitely I right. did not do it. Exactly. Right. You know, right. you want tears probably. So that's yes. great. Your husband makes kids cry. I mean, like in a yes. beautiful way. In a beautiful right. way. Right. <laughs> right. And That's it's such an thing. opportunity. It's an opportunity for character formation. Yeah. It, yeah. It's really, it's just such good groundwork for good, hard conversations that are necessary. Yeah. I just think you must have both hands like really gripped into goodness, like that you can have high standard, like that you can have high expectations. What do you think? What kind of effect do you think your high expectations have on your kids, on your your therapy kids? Great question. Um, I think they really love it. I think in the end, kids want boundaries. They, If they know that you love them and that relationship is strong um, and there is plenty of opportunities in the therapy room where we laugh a lot, there's plenty of opportunity for that. But if they cannot do the basics of respect and good behavior, we will not have any laughter. Okay. With correct behavior comes some freedoms. And so I think they really want that. And they almost light up. They sit up a little straighter. Like she really believes in me. Mm. She's really holding me to a high expectation. I had to, um, do your high expectations actually give them new possibilities for themselves? Yes. I mean, I've got a, a child right now, a middle schooler, and this child's parent has said, my child is completely transformed in the last year that he's been working with you. He had really had some significant challenges um, behavior-wise going on. And now there's a there's a little bit of a benefit. One-on-one you are, comes with some perks, right? I've done lots of classroom teaching before when the group is bigger, but you have some privileges in a one-on-one situation that are different. And so um, a lot of kids, they thrive under that and they need that. And so, um, yeah, just, just this week I had to really correct someone and say, you can't do that. You're 15 now in five years, you're 20. And if you do that on a job, you will very likely get fired. Okay. That's the reality. And then at the end of the, his, his mother was around and we were like, are you mad at Miss Jenny? Are you sad? You're upset. He was like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. He, he was fine with it, but the relationship is strong. And I wouldn't have gone in on day one and said, here's the law of the land, buddy. I wouldn't do that. Cause that just wouldn't work. Right. You have to build a relationship. <laughs> Absolutely. They'd be like, peace out, Miss Jenny. I don't want to be your friend. They wouldn't want to come back, you know? Yeah. And so we work over time at building the relationship and then I can raise the expectation as we go along and come in with a strong expectation, but also ask for more at times. Yes. Jenny, you work, you work with a lot of children who have barriers to what I would call deep reading. Perhaps one of the things that I'm always doing on bright wings is I'm, I'm always asking us to try to attend to things that are meaningful, try to identify books that are worth reading. And Mm -hmm. I, I do this not because I'm an elitist. I'm 
I'm after all, I'm an American. We're we're not elitist. <laughs> we're democratic. I'm from a small town, and, and we hate elitism. But I, I think it's just that my superpower is that I always want to live deeply. I always want to live with a deep awareness of meaning. I want to connect my children to meaningful ideas and meaningful living. Sometimes that means you know, really meaningful books. Sometimes that means spending a lot of time outside. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, books for the sake of meaningful living, books for the sake of the joy of living. Yes, I love that about your purpose. And I I think that's what really attracted me to what you were trying to do. Because it's something I would sort of like to do, but I don't quite have the time. So I'm like, oh, I'm glad you're doing it. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Like somebody do this. And the reason I say that is because I feel so strongly about reading and I have, I feel like I've really kind of come to understand the nuance and the complexity of what, of reading and, and kind of what it looks like in our country to some degree, which is this, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of kids in classrooms, I think across our country that aren't, they're just not reading well, or they're not reading on grade level. And there's a lot of controversy over how to teach reading, which I don't really understand why it's still there. Because if you sort of follow the science on it, it's pretty clear that the best way to teach it is from this phonological sound system. You have to teach the kid how to decode. They have to understand the sound system, right? And they have to have the tools to do it. It's not whole language. You don't, you don't teach kids to read by say, look at the picture and let the picture help you read the picture can help you understand the meaning of the story meaning but not the art of decoding right um there's not a lot of controversy about the science you said right um but it these can be very heated things in school systems and um i think we you know there's plenty of studies that say poverty leads to a lack of reading only because of you're trying to survive there's other issues at stake and so I think what you have in a lot of classrooms is this, you have a couple levels. You've got kids who don't know how to read because they're not really being taught the right way. And teacher preparation programs aren't really teaching teachers how to teach reading. Okay, so Mm -hmm. the teachers have to be prepared appropriately. And a lot of those classes at the college level aren't doing that per se. I don't know why, but they're not based on a lot of my own research that I've done. But then you've also got your kids in classrooms that even if they were taught that sound system, they're still probably going to have a reading disability. You've got that too. So like, which is it, right? There's kids that probably really have a reading disability, but then there's kids that just aren't being taught in the right way. So um, I think there's something like 1%. I was, I listened to a series of podcasts last summer on reading in America, lots of stats, numbers, science behind it. Don't quote me on this, but it was something like only 1% of the people will for some more severe disability or reason not be able to read. So if you think about that, maybe half the kids in a, in a given classroom are below grade level. So why is that? I really think this is, you know, like I say, read to be free. You read, you read for pleasure, but you read to be free, right? So you, this is what our country is founded on to think deeply, to understand how to think, to understand logic, to engage in in conversation. You have to be able to read well. You know, my husband will say that anytime he has a child that comes to him and there's a behavior issue, he always checks grades first. Always the child 
doesn't read well at all. Very much below grade level, like high schooler, fifth grade or below grade reading level. Mm. And that's when you see a lot of behaviors. And jail, jail numbers are directly tied to illiteracy. Oh, my gosh. So it is a problem. It's a problem. What a mysterious thing. I mean, is it too complicated a question to ponder? What does reading well have to do with self-regulation then? So much. Right? I mean, we're talking about if we read to be free and if reading deeply has something to do with um, like self-governing, a self-governing people, right? Mm -hmm. Then to Mm -hmm. like break it down to the microcosm of one human person governing oneself from within, you know, am I treating, what is my relationship with others? Like you said something earlier about justice. Um, Mm -hmm. do I live with justice? Do I treat others with justice? What, what does self-regulation have to do with reading ability? I mean, what an interesting, right. You brought up. Right. Well, and not only that, one thing I've really learned in the past year with my own education and what I'm trying to do is that there's so much more self-regulation required when it comes to writing. It's a huge tax on your executive function system. And so to be able to do it, absolutely. So writing is a huge task of of your executive functioning system. Mm -hmm. Because you have to slow your thinking down enough to, you have to plan, formulate, you have to know how to spell, you have to know grammar and punctuation. You have to slow things down so much and you have to control your body so much to sit and write. I have so many kids. Um, and this is, I see this a lot in middle schools when it really starts bothering me. I'm like, Oh, not good. I do a lot of writing instruction, increasingly more writing instruction in this since COVID kids will say, I don't want to write. I don't like to write. We don't write at school anymore. All we do is type. I'm like, well, we have a problem then (laughs) you need to know how to write. So it is hard to get kids to write and even have had situations where I was going over a fifth graders essay on something and this child had some mistakes. And I said, well, what's going on there? And she goes, oh, I don't know. It was just text predict. It just predicted what I wanted to say. So I just left it alone. And I was like, oh, Oh, no. Real, real low self-awareness on like if the, the computer just did it for me. So in her mind, that means I don't have to think it did it for me and it oh wasn't right. So writing is a huge thing. So not reading executive function skills. Yes, but writing even more so. And I don't know what it is with, at least with the population I see, by and large, they don't want to write and they need to write. No, it's true. Writing hurts. It really does. Yeah. It hurts yeah. and it involves so much thinking and thinking is one of the hardest things for us to do now. Organizing and handwriting and spelling, those are all different parts of the brain. Thinking is hard, but it's only one of the reasons why writing is so hard. Do you see that with your own kids? Yes. And, and the child with the lower executive functioning finds writing harder than their sibling. And so writing is pretty tasking for this child. Just area of growth. The payoffs are huge though. I just, it's like, I wish I could just get a child to see like, if you do this though, if you sow this seed and you do this, 
Yeah. I mean, just what it's going to develop in them. But it's hard to get kids to get excited about future long-term growth for what they do right now. <laughs> yes. yes. It's hard. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I realize though that there, even though that I love the, you know, great works of literature and that's kind of my job is to repropose uh, living deeply, you know, other, there are other mothers and fathers that have to ask a totally different set of questions. Mm-hmm. And that's okay too. Um, yeah. For example, there's this really sweet friend of mine who she and her husband both love classical education and books and writing and language, and they want this for their children. But of their four children that they've been given, two and a half of them have dyslexia. You know, one didn't quite what was like three points from being, mm-hmm. you know, rated as dyslexic. Mm-hmm. So. But, that's why she says two and a half of them are dyslexic <laughs> and um, one may have ADHD and she's asking a whole different set of questions than me. And mm-hmm. she's engaging in a whole different set of tasks than me. She's an amazing mother. So she still wants this, these beautiful things for her child, but for her children, but she has to go about things way differently than me. Right. So this summer, the whole family um, listened to, to a book that each child is going to be reading in the coming year, and then they talk it over. So they listen to it as an audio book and as a family, and then they talk it over. And she doesn't insist that they read challenging books at home because at school, they're being asked to read above grade level books, you know, pretty often. I really love when parents have, have high expectations like that. I think it's Wonderful. It is. It is something else to consider when you've got some sh- struggling learners in your own family, and there's an emotional side to that. So the first thing I would say is every family needs the right people on their team. So that's when you probably really need to spend some time seeking out the right professionals. Educate yourself as much as you can, and don't you don't necessarily lower your expectations, but you do tweak them maybe depending on where your child is at the time, right? Also, what I have seen is there is an emotional piece. Sometimes there's a grief that comes with, oh, this is something my kid has and they might have to deal with it for a while. And I've I've um, seen parents say, can you wrap this up and fix this in six months? I mean, all parents want, want that kind of result sometimes. And there's just really no way to say, yes, I can do that in six months. And so I think you kind of have to get the long game, kind of engage that question with, with kindness and curiosity about yourself. Like there's something that triggers me in a deeper level of frustration with this child that I have that struggles or makes me feel inadequate because I don't know what to do. It's just a question worth asking because I think it will lead to more growth. But by all means, you just have to get the right professional. Every speech pathologist isn't necessarily going to know a ton about reading or dyslexia. I think we have our specialties, right? It's a big field. So yeah, um, you wouldn't want to find someone who's just, I do feeding therapy, right? You just, you've got to find who can really speak to that in, in your family your, with your child. And also on that, if I may add, I would be so interested if your if your listeners would be so kind to do this. I would really, I'm at a point with what I'm doing where I'm curious what parents need 
I'm curious what teachers need. I'd love input from people on this is what I'm dealing with at home. I'm looking at ways that I can grow and support families and kids and teachers and just my communities. Can they reach out to you through Instagram? Yes, absolutely. So you are at Speech Poet? At the Speech Poet. Yeah. The Speech Poet. At the Speech Poet. Yeah. Okay. That's Mm -hmm. your Instagram handle. Jenny Richardson. Yeah. So that would be great to hear from parents and teachers what it is that they need. Right. Absolutely. And their experiences. And I mean, it, it was just a few years ago that I got out of public education and d- to do private work full time. However, I do realize things are quite a bit different because of COVID even since then. You know, mm-hmm. I know the things have changed. So there, I'd say there's probably different questions and issues on the table that I'd love to hear about from people. Well, Jenny, I want to tell you a story that I think sums up our conversation. When I was in fifth grade, I was actually, uh, I was actually assigned to do speech therapy. My parents and teachers, I think, had thought that I was going to grow out of an R problem that I had. Mm-hmm. So um, I didn't, I didn't, I said my R is almost like I was from Boston. So mm-hmm. it's so funny because I love language and I love words and I love love accents. But my R problem was an awe problem. So I would say my mm-hmm. name Charity instead mm-hmm. of Charity. People thought my name was Trudy sometimes. I've even heard people misunderstand my name as Judy or Cherokee. Very humbling. So even my own name was was a little tricky for me. But when I was mm-hmm. assigned to, when I was told that I had to go to speech therapy in fifth grade, I was so humiliated. And I was so, I was so humiliated. I thought I was going to die. I remember like shouting and crying at my parents in the kitchen because when my si- my siblings had had some speech therapy, but they were littler than me when they'd gone through the mm-hmm. program. I remember telling them that I was not going to go. I was going to be one of those kids hiding under the desk, Jenny. Ten-year-old, <laughs> 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 eleven-year-old. Um, but I, I actually, I came to this realization where I realized I realized the best way to get through this is to work really hard and get out of this program as fast as possible. And so I I did work really hard (laughs) to master the sound and get out of the program. I remember reading aloud very silly R poems and tongue twisters alone, going through this packet of material and pushing myself and listening to my sound and correcting my sound and gradually becoming secretly proud of my work and improvement. Although I didn't want anybody to even acknowledge that I was working hard because I didn't want anybody to even acknowledge that I was in therapy. And I remember all that clearly. So this all came up because lately I was going through my baby book, like materials that my mom had tucked into my baby book from growing up, report cards and awards. And I discovered my IEP papers. Mm -hmm. And I also... I also found that three months after graduating from the speech program, a letter to my parents asking my parents to to let me be admitted to the school's gifted program. Mm. What's crazy is I wouldn't have ever remembered belonging to the school's gifted program because it was boring. Mm. (laughs) It was Mm -hmm. so boring. But I really remember going through this speech therapy experience Mm -hmm. and that being really formational, not just for my the formation of my sound, my R sound, Mm -hmm. but it was really shaped my character. I think back, what if, I guess I I was reflecting on all this and I, and two things came Mm -hmm. up. One is that what you're doing has so much to do with character, Mm -hmm. right? Human formation. 
not just a mechanical formation of the way that I make my sound. Two things came up. So one is I wasn't in speech therapy because I was stupid, right? Like, of course that's true, but really finding both sets of papers, my, my speech therapy papers, and then this gifted program Mm -hmm. letter, Mm -hmm. like all these things can actually coincide in one human life, Mm. right? Absolutely. And, And then, and then the second thing that I realized in finding these papers and reflecting on this experience is that speech therapy played a far more pivotal role in my life than being in the gifted program did. If it weren't for that mm-hmm. piece of paper in the baby book, I never would have remembered that I was in the, the gifted program. Mm-hmm. We all want our children in the gifted program. We don't want them in, in right. therapy. Right. But what's far more important is what happened to me in, in the speech therapy, right? I, I marvel mm. at how important that therapy has been for me. Would I have gone to Canada and given retreats to hundreds of young people? Would I have been in Ireland um, speaking to you know large groups of Irish young people? Would I be facilitating well-read mom groups? Would mm. I be doing things at my church? Would I have this podcast if I still introduced right. myself as charity? Maybe I wouldn't have had the confidence. And fixing the right. mechanical problem really helped mm-hmm. me to grow in a human way. I love that. I love that story. And I really, it would be so cool if more people would come out and say, Hey, this was my experience when I was younger, maybe going to speech therapy or I don't know, even occupational therapy, because I couldn't hold my pencil. There's just so much stuff that I think as a therapist on this end, this is what you hope for, right? I see that all that the child could be like, there's a lot, there's a lot that this kid could be. There's unlimited potential, like in all of us. But sometimes it's those struggles that get you to where you need to be more than what you're naturally gifted at or what's easiest, right? So just the fact that you, you kind of are, yeah, like you're a good communicator. I mean, I would encourage, well, probably your listeners, they know what your website and blog looks like, but if you don't check it out, because it's cool, but you, you do this, all this stuff with communication and books and it's just, I love it. And you, you know, and our therapy is hard. Ours is hard. Is it? Oh, sometimes when kids come for, I'm like, listen, I, I had this little talk with my friends. I say, listen, if R was a person, I'd sit him down and say, we're going to have a talk because you are just getting, you're too difficult for, for anybody. <laughs> R is so hard for some kids. And I say, it is a hard, hard sound. Takes a while. It's just like, it's not like, a B or a D or an M or a P these early mm-hmm. developing it's So it's yeah. And kids are like, Oh, I can't say my R and there's a kid everywhere in a school that can't, it takes time. It takes practice. It's just as valuable to work on that as it is to address, you know, I don't read very well. Right. Mm-hmm. There are two different things, but they're, they're super important, especially to self-image and growth. And so anyway, I love that you share that story. That's, <laughs> that's a good story. And that speech therapy was more valuable to you than being in the gifted program. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <Score> right. <laughs> you know, oh my gosh. You're the right? salt of the earth, Jenny. <laughs> what you're doing is life-saving. I mean, it really, it's really life-saving. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I would love it if you'd conclude by reading one of your poems. Okay. 
so when I was studying poetry, right, I was working in the school. So a lot of my material was what I did every day, homework assignments. So this is kind of from that time. It's called South Heights Students Celebrate Back to School with Rock the Block Party. It's all hands on deck, all adults on call for all kids at all times. Moved indoors because of rain threat, steam bath, August heat. 50 cent Coke and hot dogs and galaxy painted cafeteria, stars and planets as backdrop. Coloring contests for prizes. Also inflatable full gym, kids jumping in bright red bounce house. Speeding down slide, mouths open and unleashed laughter. Shoes strewn, stench of feet and sweat. Packed with people, assistant principal as DJ, manning microphone and music. Then face painting, cheek as canvas layered on glistening skin. Rocket, flower, butterfly, Superman. Teachers in classrooms welcome smiles for families to witness where their child lives learns for 180 days of the year. Same day, white van swerved onto Barcelona's pedestrian promenade, another mass murder, few days after Charlottesville. So I paint faces with the best, splendor in surrounding ruins, these small designs holding onto you, culture, tight squeeze around kids because the world we have to give is on fire. This purple butterfly wing, this blue rocket, my prayer. Learn to love yourself, family, friends, our split America. Don't get lost, dear student, in exchange for reading and math, hugs and smiles, parties to celebrate holidays, great behavior. Be better than this. Promise you won't forget the face paint, the pink crown I adorned you with, how I dressed you up, helped you believe you are that cocooned treasure that point guard, that flower, that Superman. Thank you. <laughs> Are you crying? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for letting me read that. I appreciate it. This has been fun. We should do it again. Come to Kentucky. <laughs> I would love to. I want to, I want to meet our neighbor, Rent Wendell Berry. <laughs> and oh, you. <laughs> oh, he's, it's, he's on my bucket list. Thank you so much for this conversation, Jenny. What a delight. With a grateful heart, I dedicate today's podcast to Ruth Davison, my fifth grade speech therapist. 